standards in a confession or a catechism is, is what we understand as Reformed Presbyterians, the Bible teaches. Everyone has a, a secondary standard, even non-denominational churches. Even if they say they don't, they do. Theirs is informal. If you ask them what does the Bible teach and they tell you, that's their understanding of the Bible. Ours is just written out. And so when we talk about the covenant, if you look at the covenant, paragraph one, paragraph two, talk about the covenant of works. Adam failed in the first covenant. And then from there on out, they're referring to the covenant of grace. And so we understand the covenant of grace to be the gospel. And so when it said, how is the gospel, covenant of grace, administered under the Old Testament, it's the types and the shadows, the priestcraft, the sacrifices, all of those things. Behold the Lamb of God. Christ is the scapegoat. Christ is the Passover. Christ is the temple. So that's the ceremonial law. And so those things were how the gospel was given to Israel before the incarnation. And then subsequent to the incarnation, the gospel goes forth with greater simplicity. He's come. So that's how to understand that. And then that last word, just by way of clarification, it uses the word dispensation. It doesn't mean dispensationalism. We are covenant, we are covenant, we are covenantal in our understanding of the Bible. So it uses the word dispensation there. Aha! Just like, you know, Hudson Futz with his uh, charts. Um, it, it's just a different usage. It means old epoch versus new epoch. I'll talk about that in the sermon. But Ezekiel 40, it's a lengthy chapter where we have 49 verses. If you're wondering how I'm going to preach this, I'm wondering how I'm going to preach this too, so you pray for me. Ezekiel 40, uh, this is the word of God, uh, verse uh, 1. And I pray that I could read it in faith and we all could receive it in faith. And a 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the, the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the city was taken, on that same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me there. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel. He set me on a very high mountain, and on it, to the south, there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, and with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, give attention to all that I am going to show you. If you have been brought here in order to, sh- I've been brought, you've been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. Behold, there was a wall on the outside of the temple all around, and the man's hand was a measuring rod of six cubits, each of which was a cubit and a hand breadth. He measured the thickness of the wall, one rod, and the height, one rod. He went to the gate which faced east, went up on its steps, measured the threshold of the gate, one rod in width, and the other threshold was one rod in width. The guard room was one rod long, one rod wide, there were five cubits between the guard rooms. The threshold of the gate by the porch of the gate facing inward was one rod. He measured the porch of the gate facing inward, one rod. He measured the porch of the gate, eight cubits. Side pillars, two cubits. The porch of the gate was faced inward. The guard rooms of the gate towards the east numbered three on each side. The three of them had the same measurement. The side pillars also had the same measurements on each side. He measured the width of the gate weigh 10 cubits, the length of the gate 13 cubits, there was a barrier wall 1 cubit wide in front of the guard rooms on each side, the guard rooms were 6 cubits square on each side he measured the gate from the roof of the one guard room to the roof of the other a width of 25 cubits from one door to the door opposite he made the 6 pillars 60 cubits high, the gate extended around about to the side pillar of the courtyard from the front of the entrance gate to the front of the inner porch of the gate was 50 cubits 
There were shuttered windows looking towards the guard rooms and towards the side pillars within the gate all around. Likewise for the porches, there were windows all around inside, and each side pillar were palm tree ornaments. Then he brought me into the outer court, and behold, there were chambers and a pavement made for the court all around. Thirty chambers faced the pavement. The pavement, that is the lower pavement, was by the side of the gates, corresponding to the length of the gates. Then he measured the width from the front of the lower gate to the front of the exterior and the inner court, hundred cubits on the east and on the north. As for the gate of the outer course, which faced to the north, he measured its length and its width. It had three guard rooms on either side, its side pillars, its porches, had the same measurement as the first gate. Its length was 50 cubits, width 25 cubits. Its windows and its porches and its palm tree ornaments had the same measurements as the gate which faced east. And it was reached by seven steps. Its porch was in the front of them. The inner court had a gate opposite the gate on the north as well as the gate on the east. He measured a hundred cubits from the gate to gate. Then he led me to the south, and behold, there was a gate towards the south. He measured the side pillars, its porches, according to the same measurements. The gate, its porches, had windows all around it like those of the other windows. The length was 50 cubits, the width 25 cubits. There were seven steps going up to it. Its porches were in front of them. It had palm tree ornaments on its side pillars, on one on each side. The inner court had a gate towards the south. He measured it from gate to gate towards the south, a hundred cubits. He brought me to the inner court by the south gate. He measured the south gate according to those same measurements. Its guard rooms also, its side pillars, its porches were according to the same measurements. And the gate and its porches had windows all around. It was 50 cubits long, 25 cubits wide. There were porches all around, 25 cubits long, 5 cubits wide. Its porches were towards the outer court. Palm tree ornaments were on the side pillars. And its stairway had eight steps. He brought me into the inner court towards the east. He measured the gate according to the same measurements. Its guard rooms also had side pillars. Its porches were according to the same measurements. And the gate and its porches had windows all around. It was 50 cubits long, 25 cubits wide. Its porches were towards the outer court. The palm tree ornaments were on its side pillars on each side. Its stairway had eight steps. And he brought me to the north gate. He measured it according to the same measurements. With its guard guard rooms, its side pillars, its porches, the gate had windows all around. The length was 50 cubits, width 25 cubits. Its side pillars were towards the outer court. Palm tree ornaments were on the side pillars on each side. Its stairway had eight steps. A chamber with its doorway was by the side pillars at the gates. They were to rinse. They were to rinse the burnt offerings. In the porch of the gate were two tables on either side on which to slaughter the burnt offerings, the sin offering, the guilt offering. On the outer court, as one went up to the gateway towards the north, were two tables. On the other side of the porch of the gate were two tables. Four tables were on either side next to the gate of eight tables on which they slaughter sacrifices. For the burnt offering, there were four tables of hewn stone, a cubit and a half long, a cubit and a half wide, and one cubit high on which they lay the instruments with which they slaughter the burnt offerings and the sacrifice. The double hooks, one handbreadth in length, were installed in the house all, all around, and on the table was the flesh of the offering. From the outside to the inner gate were chambers for the singers of the inner court, one of which was at the side of the north gate with its front towards the south, one at the side of the south gate to, facing towards the north. He said to me, This is the chamber which faces towards the south, intended for the priests who keep charge of the temple. But the chamber which faces towards the north is for the priests who keep charge of the altar. 
These are the sons of Zadok, who are from the sons of Levi, come near to the Lord to minister to him. He measured the court, a perfect square, 100 cubits long, 100 cubits wide. The altar was in the front of the temple. Then he brought me to the porch of the temple and measured each side pillar of the porch, five cubits on either side. The width of the gates was three cubits on each side. The length of the porch was 20 cubits on of width, 11 cubits. And at the stairway by which it was ascended were columns belonging to the side pillars, one on either side. The word of God. Let's, let's pray. A gracious God, um, we love you. We love you not because we love you first. You loved us, Lord Jesus Christ, while we, we were yet enemies and you died for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for all of the Bible, from the very first book, Genesis, to the very last book, Revelation, from things which are clear and simple to us, like John 3.16, to even things like this. Uh, help me, Holy Spirit. Um, help me rightly divide the word of truth, cast away from me any foolishness, and may the words of this sermon be true according to the words of your holy book, and may we be built up in you, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If I wasn't a book preacher, which I'm a book preacher, I'm not a topical preacher. I do topicals from time to time. My, my method is to preach through New Testament books in the morning and Old Testament books in the evening. And so there's a method to my madness. My desire as a minister is kind of a synergistic desire. So if you come to this church for any length of time, say five years, um, my desire is that you would get a full-orbed view of, of God's Word. You, New Testament, Old Testament, systematic theology, pastoral, practical theology. And so when you look at why do you teach the way you do, there is a plan, believe it or not. But if I were a topical preacher, I would preach on something like, I don't know how to have good finances. I would never never look at Ezekiel chapter 40, but it's here. God put it. I'm just going to tell you that the key to this passage is, um, is Revelation 21. We're going to get there, I think. I have a lot here. If I don't get it all out, I might not get it all out. I can shoot it to you in the church email. It's a lengthy sermon. Um, I, hope I, I hope I don't miss it, but I'm just going to tell you in advance. The key to understanding Ezekiel 40, I would actually argue 40 to 48 is a, is a, is a unit. Verses 1 through 20, uh, ch- chapters 1 through 24 in Ezekiel is God's promising to chastise uh, uh, Israel for their sins. And then when you get to around 32, he, he picks up with the Gentiles. Um, 40 to 48 is a unit. It's the restoration of Jerusalem. It's the restoration of the temple. And so when I say Revelation 21 is the key, remember when we were looking at the Battle of Armageddon and Gog and Magog. The key to understanding 38 and 30, chapter 38 and chapter 39 is the book of Revelation from 16 to chapter 21. Because when you find Revelation, Revelation is going to come along and say Gog and Magog, the Battle of Armageddon. So since scripture is progressive in nature, and it is progressive in nature, it means it gets increasingly clear. So if we're looking at this passage thinking, what in the world? If you, if, if you didn't know your New Testament, if you didn't have the book of Revelation, you would be right to say, I have no idea what this means. But since we have the book of Revelation, and we're going to see another angel measuring another temple in the book of Revelation, this is the precursor to that. And I'll just tell you in advance, 
We're looking at the restoration of, I'm, I, what did I put it? The restoration of the church of God. So in Ezekiel 40 to 48, increasingly and in various ways, God is saying two things. I'm going to, make, I'm going to restore new Jerusalem and I'm going to restore a new temple. Think of those two things. New Jerusalem and a new temple. That's what this is teaching. So I am not going to walk back in the cubits and this and the cubit and that, I, I assure you. We're going to look at this spiritually understood. And I think it's rightly understood. So if I say to you, what, when we think forward to the future, when Christ comes back, what comes down out of the, the air as the new Jerusalem? Who, who or what is it? It's the glorified church. And, and when you have the angel in the book of Revelation measuring out exactly like this, What's he measuring out? He's measuring out a complex for the people of God to dwell in which there will be no temple because God and Christ are the temple. It's the glorified church. So again, if I don't get to the end of my sermon, that's the end of my sermon. This is teaching in symbolical language that God and Christ is going to restore New Jerusalem, the city of God, and the heavenly temple, and we are the temple of God. And Christ even referred to his body as the temple. I realize that there are Christians that cry foul to that, but I, I want to back up. And, and since this is such a lengthy section, eight chapters, I think I can lay some groundwork for understanding some of these more perplexing things of Scripture. And this is a hard passage. My wife and I are worshiping at home in our, our own family worship through the book of Revelation. And I try to work my Bible pretty good. And there are sections where my wife's like, what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know. Let's look at Matthew Henry. <laughs> so, so I'm not telling you that these things don't stump me. Now, we are Reformed Christians, obviously. And I mean, I know that means a lot, but whatever. But we're Reformed Christians. And so we maintain a doctrine called the pur- purpose, purpose, no, what is it? Pur- purpose. I butchered that. And that means it's the, it's the reformed fancy way of saying the clarity of Scripture. Perspicuity. 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 That's right. We always say that. As Presbyter- we can't come up with a word like clear. The Bible is clear. We have to come up with a Presbyterian way of saying the Bible is clear. It's a fancy word that you can't pronounce, or at least when you're too tired. So we believe in the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Sola Scriptura. The authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, that kind of thing. So we say the Bible is clear. Now then you come to this passage and say, are you sure about that, Pastor John? (laughs) Yes. So what do we mean as Reformed Christians who say the Bible is perspicuous? It's clear. I'll tell you what we don't mean. We don't mean that everything in the Bible is clear or is equally clear as other things. When we say the Bible is clear, we mean on those things which are necessary to be believed and received unto salvation. That's a fancy way of saying the gospel. Give me any translation. Give me the New Jerusalem, which is the Catholic translation. Give me any translation. I'm real translation. I'm not talking goofy Jehovah's Witness translation. Give me any real translation of the Bible. And give me John 3.16. And let me read that. And if you can read English and understand English... What are you going to... For God so loved the world. Anybody believes in him is not going to perish. They're going to have everlasting life. Very clear. 
So that's what we mean as Reformed Christians say the Bible is clear. The Bible, in some place or another, clearly sets forth the gospel of salvation. Christ is Christ. Believe in him, you go to heaven. Don't believe in him, you don't go to heaven. And another thing that we maintain that the Bible is clear about is what God requires of those that he calls to himself, namely a life of holiness. The standard for living a holy life is the moral law. And where does God clearly set forth his moral law? Uh, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then Jesus does it in the Beatitudes with the similitudes in uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 16. And so the Bible does say, here's what God wants you to do. Love God and love people now that you believe in Jesus. That's clear. So does God not want us to murder? Yeah, he sure he says it. Sixth commandment. Does he want us to love God? Yeah. One commandment's one through four. So very clear. So that's what we mean. When we come to this passage, and it is a hard passage, even holding that doctrine of the clarity of Scripture, it doesn't, we're not denying that you can go to passages in the Bible and go, how in the world does this work? J.I. Packer, who I think is a genius. He's an Anglican. I love him. There are some things maybe that I differ with J.I. I don't like to differ with geniuses. He's a genius. And you may not like J.I., but I love J.I. He's in heaven now. He writes a little treatise on the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And I'm, he's going to untie the Gordian knot for the, how God elects and how man is still responsible, even dead in his tres, sins and trespasses, which is the classic conundrum. I'm like, yes, I can't figure this out. J.I. is going to figure it out for me. I get to the end of this treatise and he says it's a mystery. <laughs> so if J.I. Packer looks at these things, which the Bible says you're dead in your sins and trespasses, now God commands you to come, and if you don't come, you go down, and if you do come, you go up. How does that work? It's a mystery. So we are not denying that there are difficult passages, but the gospel's not. Does that make sense? So the gospel is clear. What does God want us to do? Love God and love people. Clear. But we also, we also want to say there are, thi- there are things which God reveals that I would argue in this life are, that are beyond the comprehension of even the best believer. How about the doctrine of the Trinity? How, let's back up. How about the doctrine of the aseity of God? That God is utterly independent, that God is utterly underived, that God is utterly sufficient in himself. This is the Jehovah, this is the Yahweh, the aseity of God. It's a mind blower. The Trinity of God, the two natures of Christ, how God became man. We could go on and on and on and on where we're just going to go, I know this much, but I don't know the other. I say all of that because when we come to a passage like this and we scratch our heads, or a brother or a sister that differs with us theologically, they say potato and we say potato, or they say it's A and we say it's B, we're not fighting over the gospel, I would argue. So if someone's wrong in the gospel, they're not my brother, they're an evangelistic prospect. If we differ, if we're we're correct and unified with the gospel and we differ over some eschatological position, you're still my brother. Does that make, would you agree with that? And so when we come here and say, well, dispensationalists say one thing, 
non-dispensational covenant theology people like me say another thing. I get that. So I'm going to first give you here a little bit how a dispensationalist, and if you're a dispensationalist, what does that mean? Um, I don't want to get into I want a full-blown thing on dispensationalists. Dispensationalists are Christians. Eh, do I want to get into this? Yeah, okay. So uh, Darby gets fired in Ireland. He's an Anglican. He gets fired. He comes over to England. He sells his shtick to Schofield. Schofield takes his new system. He puts it into a Bible. He sells it. Everybody thinks that uh, it's inspired by God. And it's a, it's a new system of way of looking at the Bible that God saves people via these various dis- dispensations. I know that's the short version, but there's a, there's a fundamental belief in dispensationalism. I used to be a dispensationalist. I, I really was a devotee of, um, of uh, John MacArthur. So dispensationalists, one of the key tenets of dispensationalism is they maintain a distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is Israel, and the church is church, and the, same, and the twain shall never meet. They're totally two different critters. So God has plan A for the Jews and plan B for the church. I know that's simplified, but trust me, it's true. And so, I probably shouldn't say that, but it's true. So when they come to this passage, what they're saying is this. Okay, Pastor John, this is the dispensationalist. What's going on here is a God is promising in the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back. This is not eternity coming back like what we would believe or Lutherans believe or Anglicans believe. When Jesus comes back for, this, for the millennial kingdom, they're going to build a third temple. And in this third temple, they're going to reinstitute animal sacrifices. They're going to have Levites again. Remember the meat hooks in our passage? See the meat hooks? We're going to have Levites. We're going to have meat hooks. We're going to have sacrifices. And then so the covenantal person would come here and say, so you're going to reinstitute the old ceremonial law? Jesus is going to leave his throne from heaven and sit in a throne in Jerusalem? And you're going to have Levitical priests, which were typological of the great priest? Yes. That's what they maintain that this is looking at. They maintain that this is looking at a third temple in the millennial kingdom and what they believe in relationship to that. Remember, Israel is Israel, the church is the church. During this time, the church is zapped out, raptured out to heaven. The church gets heaven, and what do the Jews get? They get the renovated Palestine. And so Christ leaves heaven, he comes back to earth, he's in the stone temple, and we have all of these sacrifices. Now, a sharp dispensationalist will say, well, the sacrifices are not propitiation. Only Christ is propitiation. They're, they're looking back towards the sacrifice of Jesus. The ceremonial law is never a look back. The ceremonial law was always a look forward. Read the book of Leviticus. The first seven chapters are what? Sacrifices, and then from chapter 8 on are, are the sacrificers, the priest's craft. All of those things were saying, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. I used to be a dispensationalist. I would say, this is the third temple. When the church is out and the Jews are running the show with Jesus and all, they're going to kill critters all over again. And then I read a, a book on covenant theology and dispensational theology, and the author, a Baptist guy, but a covenantal Baptist guy, said, read the book of Hebrews again. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus on the cross says, Tetelestai, it is finished. What's finished? 
All of those things are done. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, the blood of the lamb did. He's, he is the, he's the true high priest. He enters into the true holy of holies. So I am arguing that this passage doesn't teach a physical stone temple. There are real measurements. There's going to be a new second temple built in Jerusalem, but it's not the second, it's not the temple that's being spoken of here on a high mountain in a new Jerusalem. This is an eschatological temple. So it's a different animal altogether. I know I'm introducing a lot of things, but when I say the dispensationalists and their brothers, I love these guys. John MacArthur is a genius. I couldn't hold his bags. So I'm not, I'm not criticizing them. I just see things differently. And, and so when, and part of the reason the dispensationalist sees this passage as a dispensationalist and us, us covenantals say, no, this is, this, is, this is the purified city of God. This is the new temple. This is the renovated people of God. Part of the reason has to do, there, there are two reasons. God gives a measure of faith. Not everybody has the same measure of faith. Different Christians have different measures of faith and they have different measures of insight into the Bible. Some people are, this is why when people are like, well, it's just me and my Bible. Well, the the New Testament church has been around for 2,000 years. Has God not had some really smart people that have been given insight by the Bible? Is it just you and the Bible? I mean, I think you should be with the Bible. But Augustine was pretty smart. Jerome was pretty smart. All of these guys were pretty, Luther was pretty good. Calvin was pretty good. So shouldn't we say, well, how did our fathers in the faith see these things? And whatever we're raised in uh, religiously, and this is a reason why you have differences on how, again, we're just looking thematically at this. We're going to talk a lot about in the next eight weeks to get through this whole section. But why there is such different, and you can have people say, it means this, it means this, and I totally believe this. One of the things is not only the different measure of faith and insight, But also we all have theological, hermeneutical lenses, glasses on. Every one of us reads the Bible through certain theological lenses. And what do I mean by that? If I raised you as a dispensationalist to say Israel is Israel, the church is the church, and the secret rapture, if I raise you that way, see, I am going to raise you to read the Bible through those particular lenses. And guess what? You don't know you have those lenses on. Why? That's just Bible. No, it's a Schofield Bible. What's wrong with the Schofield Bible? It's just the Bible. You, you don't know. Does a, fish, does a fish know it's wet? No, a fish doesn't know it's wet. It's in the water. It always lives in the water. And it, the same thing. If I raise you in a Presbyterian church and then you walk into a dispensational church and they're preaching on this, you're like, what are you all talking about? Can't you read Revelation chapter 21? That's because you were raised looking at the Bible through a different set of lenses and we don't know that we have those lenses on. I would argue this is the benefit of rubbing shoulders with other brothers. Like, wow, okay, that's how you see it. Okay, this is how I see it. I think I'm right, and you think I'm wrong. So I, I, I throw this out there because if you say to me, well, pastor, my cousin Fred says this is the temple in the third kingdom, the millennial kingdom, I could say, yeah. I can show you John MacArthur's study Bible. It's in my office. He believes it too. I used to believe it, but I don't believe it anymore. Because when I come to the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem adorned for like a bride. And I'll show you new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. This is the church. And when we're looking, when we have the exact same language of an angel measuring out the temple complex in the book of Revelation in the eternal estate, 
that's the glorified people of God. So I am I preach the Bible and believe the Bible according to what I am. And and so too. We we come here and we're looking at it through our lenses. It's always helpful if you can recognize what your lenses are. Um, if you say, I am thus and so, my folks were thus and so, my grandparents were thus and so. If you take a person steeped in Reformed theology and they come here, they think, ha, oh, ho, hum, this is just plain vanilla. If you take a person who's steeped in Arminianism, they're looking for the door. They're thinking, what kind of lunatics are you? I thought you believed in Jesus. What is this election business? Well, I don't think so from here, but I preach a lot of Jesus. So we have the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is, there can be difficult passages. Dispensational Christians see this as a rebuilt millennial t- kingdom. We see this as the restored church. That's what this, we see this passage as. Now, when you come here, again, we're just setting the stage for future sermons, given what we're talking about. Because he's going to keep going on the various, and the temple looks like this, and this, and this, and this, and God himself will dwell among his people. That's Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22. I'll just tell you again. It's helpful when we look at a perplexing passage like this, which it is, to remind ourselves of the essential message of the Bible. If I said, you got 30 seconds, tell me what the Bible is about. What would you tell me the Bible is about? 30 seconds, go, boom, what's the Bible? Genesis 3.15 tells you what the Bible is all about. And the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the seed of what? The seed of Satan. And Paul says in Romans chapter 16, the seed of the woman is Christ and he's crushing the head of the serpent. Just as an aside, this is my Roman Catholicism. If you go, you could do it today. It wouldn't be breach of the Lord's Day. Mashing on Google, um, Mary standing on the head of the serpent. Famous paintings, Roman Catholic theology, that it's Mary who's crushing the head of the serpent. Check that out. I have a blog, just as an aside. I have a blog on the church website, and it's on Mariolatry. And I have various paintings. If you think I'm, I promise you I'm telling you the truth. And you'll look like, she's standing on the head of the serpent. Isn't that Jesus' job? Right. (laughs) Right. Jesus is the one that stands on the head of the serpent. So the gospel is primarily the message that God will send his Savior in. He will save his people from their sins, from Satan, and reconcile them back to God. And that theme runs all the way through the Bible, even here. The reason I point that out is is this is a redemptive historical way of looking at the Bible. So you come, someone said, how in the world are you going to preach Christ from the book of Levit- Leviticus? Read Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. That's Christ. How do I know that? Read the book of Hebrews. So when you come here, you're like, you're going to get Jesus out of there? Oh, yeah. Because once you understand, this is what the Bible is teaching. Oh, through the whole Bible, there's always a, 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 a golden thread. I'm going to save my people from their sins. I'm going to restore them to an Eden-like existence. That's this. New city, new temple, and I will dwell among them. That's the promise. So if you say, well, Pastor John, you can't answer all the difficulties. No, I'll tell you right away, I can't. But I can tell you the big picture. I can tell you the big picture. And we can understand. We can, when you go to a perplexing passage and you're studying the word of God and you hit a hard passage, just slow yourself down and say, what are the, what's the basic message? How does this reveal Christ to me? What, 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 what's going on here? And you'll be surprised how much you can understand even in difficult passages. So this passage is going to teach the redemption and the reconciliation of God's people. Now, 
the content of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is, again, we're looking at it kind of uh, a macro view. The content of Ezekiel, if I said, if you've been here from the beginning, what's the basic message of Ezekiel? Ezekiel's written concerning the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah speaks about it. Uh, Jeremiah speaks about it. Ezekiel is writing about the Babylonian captivity. The people of God have been breaking the Sabbath, particularly the land Sabbath. And God says, since you won't let the land lie fallow, since you want to live like a Gentile, off you go to to live with the Gentiles for seven years because I'm going to make my land lie fallow. So it's a land Sabbath was one of their sins and they are idolatrous. They're living like Gentiles. Off they go. Before they go, there's a place in Jeremiah, it will come to me, where God says to them, you're going for seven years. And I want you to pray for this city. Why should you pray for the city? Because you're staying there. (laughs) Build houses, start buildings, raise your children, do it all. You're not coming back. So don't think you're joining a militia. You're going to overthrow Babylon and you're getting back in a week and a half. You're going for seven years. And why you're going for seven years is because you've been sinful and I'm going to put you there for seven years, but I'm going to bring you back. So there is the business. uh, It's judicial. And then I think for the unbeliever part of Israel and and then fatherly discipline for the believing but sinning, but always, I'm going to bring you back. And when I bring you back, what will, what will happen? What, what's going to happen when, when Israel is brought back into the land? Ezra and Nehemiah, they're going to rebuild the temple. What does the temple of God represent? It's where God and man can meet safely. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And who goes into the temple, the holy of holies, once a year, the high priest? And what does he go and do? He sprinkles the Ark of the Covenant, which is a box covered with gold. What's inside of the box? The law of God. What's over the box? The mercy seat. What's being sprinkled on it? Blood. That's Christ. That's Christ. Christ pays for our breach of the law so that God and man can be reconciled. That's what the temple teaches. That's why in in Hebrews chapter 11, it says Moses left Pharaoh to suffer the reproaches of Christ and Christ's people. Really? The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, and God preached the gospel to Abraham. Really? When did he do that? Chapter, chapter 12 of Genesis 15, 17, 22, all over the place. Well, you're talking about the Paschal Lamb. That's exactly right. So when we come here, God is promising they're still enslaved. The people of God are enslaved. They're in Babylonian captivity. And here's Ezekiel. He says, I'm 25 years in. How many years slave? How many years bondage are you going to do? You're going to do seventy. I'm twenty five years in. How many more years are left? Twenty twenty five to seventy. I was a sociology major, but even I can get that. Fifty more years, right? In fifty years, God's going to bring you back to the land. But even beyond that, He's going to build New Jerusalem and He's going to restore the temple of God. Even beyond that, when will that be? When he wants it. Will it be tomorrow? If he wants it tomorrow. But what happens if it's a year? What happens if it's two years? What happens if it's 50 years? What is he calling the people of God to live upon? My word. What do we call that? We are called to walk by faith and not by what? We say that. It's it's so easy to say, I just believe God's. I'm just standing on the promises. (laughs) If I put you in slavery, slavery, and said, God promises to get you out of slavery. He's going to rebuild the city because the Babylonians have trashed it. 
He's going to build you a beautiful new city and he's going to build you a temple. He's going to basically restore the gospel and won't it be wonderful there? You think, wow, that's awesome. And, and when will it be? 50 years. Well, I'm 70. What does that mean? You're going to die in captivity. You're going to die a slave. Well, that doesn't seem like very good news. That's why, that's why when you think, well, if, it, if this is the crescendo or the climax of, just the, of a second temple built under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, it's, it's not very good news. But if God tells you, I'm going to bring the... Jerusalem is city of peace. Jeru Salem. Jeru in Hebrew is city and Salem is peace. Who's the prince of peace? Jesus Christ. So he, he, God tells the angel, God takes Ezekiel, he says, he says he takes him to a place that looks like a city. And he takes him to this city that's built on a very high mountain. How many feet above sea level is, is the earthly Jerusalem? 2,500. Is that a very high mountain? My kid used to live out in, uh, my son used to live out in uh, Colorado. And uh, he lived at 6,400. So what's, what's a mile? 50, 52, 5,000, something like that. And then one day we went to the base of Pikes Peak, which is 10,000 feet. And I'm prone to uh, suffer from uh, altitude difficulty. My wife is not. 2,500, that's not a high mountain. So when God says, I'm going to rebuild this place on a very high mountain, it, it is an eschatological city. I want to read something to you just to show you I'm not playing fast and loose with this. Um, where do I have? Ah, Isaiah 2. Let's just talk about this new city that God promises. And God wants his people who are living in Babylonian captivity to live upon the promise that he's going to have this new Jerusalem. Isaiah 2. The word which Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it will come about, listen, in the last days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above all the hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his path. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Beloved, that's the church. That is the church. That's the church when she comes the first time with Christ's first advent. And that's the church when Christ comes in his second advent. And why do I know that this Jerusalem above is being used symbolically? Galatians chapter 4. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia in correspondence to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. The, 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 the earthly Jerusalem... God, the Holy Spirit says in Galatians, is in slavery, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. That's the church. Hebrews chapter 12, um, Revelation 3. And then I'll read from Revelation 21. Revelation 3, 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my, our, my God. This is that new Jerusalem, new temple. And, and he will not go out from it anymore. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. This is the high mountain. It comes down of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passed away. 
There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, is the church. It is the church. One more. I have lots more, but I would would keep you till 9 o'clock. If you think, well, Pastor John, who in the world believes this? Matthew Henry, I, 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 I recommend reading Matthew Henry on this whole passage. Matthew Henry says, this is Christ coming to measure out this new temple that's pointing forward to the glorified church. He sees this fellow, this bronze fellow with this, with this measuring rod to be essentially Christ that has revealed himself both in Daniel and Revelation. He sees it clearly. This is Jesus. Jesus is a priest. Ezekiel is a priest. Measuring out. When you think of the temple, it's not just a building. It's a complex. So the language is being used as symbolical. But I'll, I'll, I'll end with one quote. Revelation 21. This is a lengthy quote, and then I promise I'll be quiet. I saw a new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven, the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God. You get that? What was the precursor for the temple? It was the tabernacle. It's where God and man meet. The tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. Where do we see God with us? Emmanuel. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be. That's the covenant promise. That's the gospel. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. No longer mourning, crying, pain. The first things have passed away. This is not a millennial kingdom. This is the eternal estate. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, Christ, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God and he will be my son. Covenant promise. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the immoral persons, the sorcerer, pharmakia, idolaters, all liars, their part will be the lake of that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, the church, the bride of Christ. He carried me away in the spirit to the great high mountain. That's what Ezekiel is, the great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like costly stone, as clear crystal crystal jasper it had a great high wall 12 gates the gates had the 12 angels names were written on them the 12 names of the tribes of the sons of israel three gates east three gates on the north this this is why i said this is the key to ezekiel and the three gates on the north the three gates in the south three gates on the west and on the wall of the city it had 12 foundation stones which were written the 12 names of the apostles of the lamb the twelve names of the tribes of Israel, the Old Testament Church, the twelve names of the tribes, uh, the twelve names of the apostles, representative of the New Testament Church, as one church, the glorified church. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, and its gates and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. It's the perfect church. This is the four square, and the length as great as the, the width. And he measured the city with a rod, fifteen hundred miles. And its length and width and height are equal. And, and he measured its walls 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. 
The material of the wall was jasper. The city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone, jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysophras, jacinth, amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. This is symbolical language for a perfect church, a perfect people of God. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord and the Lord Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. The people of God living in Babylon are being told by God, here's my promise. I'm going to send my Christ in. And he will restore you. He'll take away all your, your, your sins. And he will build and bring you into the new Jerusalem. And he will build and bring you into this glorified temple. And we are the temple of God. And every believer, both in the Old and the New Te- Testament epoch, we are in Babylon. We are dwelling in the Babylonian captivity. The heart of every believer, when we hear these great promises, should be, even so, Lord Jesus Christ. What? Come quickly. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.